You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. A lot of the mystery mongering books, uh, you know, Lauren's and Carl Schuchers and others are more than happy to sort of leave out the inconvenient parts. Well, it's the same thing that happens with the ghost cases. You know, somebody may explain a ghost photo or a haunting, and then the explanation's never reprinted the way that the uh, original haunting story is reprinted again and again. I call that Chinese whispers, the, the way that uh, stories are passed down to people and just seem to morph and change, become embellished. Mm-hmm. That's the scientific term. Chinese whispers. <laughs> yeah. The linguistic term. Yeah. 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 It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith, and together with my co-hosts, Benjamin Radford and Dr. Karen Stolzno, we examine stories about monsters to see what science and skeptical inquiry can tell us about the veracity of such claims. This week, we're going to talk about two monster stories. The first is the case of the Zuyo Maru, in which a Japanese fishing boat hauled aboard an animal carcass that looked suspiciously like a dead plesiosaur. The second case is that of the Paluxy tracks. These tracks were once touted as evidence that giant humans walked alongside the dinosaurs. Our guest today is Glenn Cuban, who investigated both of these cases, and he will tell us about his findings and how young Earth creationists wanted to use both of these cases to try to disprove the theory of evolution. I think you'll find it an interesting tale and maybe learn something new. I know I did. Monster dog. I could read something to you. 
the case of the Zuyo Maru. I'm reading from the Reader's Digest Mysteries of the Unexplained. On April 25th, 1977, the Japanese fishing vessel Zuyo Maru hauled aboard a huge carcass that no one had been able to Actually, it says no one has been able to identify. And this was 1980, I believe, when this book came out. 82, this is the updated uh, version. Fifth printing is actually 1985. So that's what, this is one of those cases where I believe by 1985 they knew what it was. But they didn't go back and fix the Reader's Digest. So Just good. looking at uh, some of the, the citations, it doesn't seem like too much was really done after the 80s into it. It seems like they sort of um, they had some big conference um, I think between France and Japan, um, some oceanographic conference, and they basically declared that these were the remains of a basking shark. The bulk of people in science seem to have accepted already that it's just a shark. Right, exactly. But the uh, the monster books are still reporting it as being a sea monster as late as 1985, or at least unknown did you read that article that I sent to you about the death worm? Oh, I sure did. I'm very excited about that death worm research. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you saw that, Ben. It was, this was from uh, the Herald Sun, which is a, uh, a newspaper in Victoria. Mm-hmm. And it advertised the acid-spitting death worm hunt in Mongolia, mm-hmm. Gobi Desert, uh, to find the fabled acid-spitting and lightning-throwing Mongolian death worm. Um, so a fellow from New Zealand. So they seem to be causing a lot of trouble at the moment. That's the, the topic of uh, what we're discussing today. But uh, it's called the Algoi corkoi, the intestine mm-hmm. worm, because it resembles a cow's intestine and is about 1.5 metres long. Uh, and so the worm apparently jumps out of the sand and kills people by spitting concentrated acid or shooting lightning from its rectum over long distances. How cool is that? <laughs> It's the, it's the fact that it can t- attack in two different directions that I think it makes it so formidable. Yeah, I remember at, at, uh, there was a 14 Times Unconvention a couple years back. I think one of the cryptozoologists, I think it was John Downs, uh, gave a recounting of his expedition to uh, Ulaanbaatar to go check out the uh, the Mongolian death worm. That's interesting. So it spits acid, and, and weirdly enough, if you take acid, you're more likely to see it. Right, and, and yeah, there you go, and and it, and it poops uh, lightning. I mean, it does, it does. Apparently, there have been four unsuccessful expeditions searching for it in the last hundred years, uh, and this New Zealand team they're they're going to uh, try and bring the worm to the surface with explosives. <laughs> <laughs> and they're going to get through through security. I. I th- <laughs> That's dangerous. I think what they should use is thumpers. So one of the things that amused me about that article was that they were using the position, why would they make something like this up <laughs> as a reason why it's plausible? Because, I mean, what? I mean, come on. Yeah, it's, it's uh, rumors could inflate the reputation of things like the Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot, but sparsely populated Mongolia was not a place where rumors were going to propagate. So right. that's your reason to lie. That's what he said. That's <laughs> Interesting theory. I, uh, I hadn't, that, that particular uh, thread of illogic hadn't really come across. Monster Dog. Tonight uh, we're talking with Glenn Cuban. Uh, Glenn, you come from a paleontological background, is that accurate? Uh, more of a biology background, actually. I have a BA in biology and I, I've taught uh, high school biology, and uh, but I do a lot of active uh, paleo research on the side. That's kind of my, uh, my passion, uh, especially uh, footprints, trace fossils, dinosaur tracks, things like that. But um, 
Yeah, I also, you know, am interested in the uh, creation evolution controversy and cryptozoology, and uh, if that's what you made me want to talk about tonight. Yeah, we've got a couple of things we want to talk to you about tonight. That uh, you've been involved with some research on a couple of big cases that have um, been around for a few years. Uh, right. One for a lot of years, if you think about it. <laughs> but uh, the the first one is the the Zoyumaru case, and the second thing we'd like to talk about is the Paluxy fossilized tracks, which some people have alleged are human tracks next to dinosaur tracks. Right. So, how did you uh, get involved in researching the Zoyumaru? Well, I guess I've been um, interested in cryptozoologies. Since uh, I was a kid, even before I got interested in uh, paleontology and the, the Paluxy tracks, um, but uh, actually both groups, cryptozoologists and creationists, as you probably know, um, during the 1980s and, and uh, early 90s, uh, wrote uh, quite a few articles um, suggesting that this uh, carcass that was netted in 1977 in Japan might be some type of uh, sea monster or plesiosaur. So um, after I read uh, these various uh, articles, I decided uh, to look into it further myself. I wasn't really satisfied with the level of treatment that many of them uh, had done on it, and so I started gathering all the information I could and then wrote an analysis of it, uh, which was uh, published in uh, 1997 in the um, reports of the National Center for Science Education. It's kind of a skeptics-type journal. Yeah, why don't you give us sort of a background on the case? Basically, um, this carcass, uh, which was uh, quite large and um, did sort of resemble a plesiosaur, it had a small head with a long neck and four large flipper-like limbs, Um, and uh, one of the uh, crew members uh, took uh, a few photographs of it and some some quick quick measurements before they threw it overboard because it was uh, stinking and uh, they were afraid it would uh, spoil the uh, fish catch. But before that happened, uh, some tissue samples were taken of one of the fins, and uh, that uh, really helped resolve the case, although uh, for some reason many of the people writing about it did not look into the results of that tissue um, analysis very carefully. But um, basically there were several lines of evidence which I think uh, strongly pointed to it being a basking shark. Um, anatomically, uh, its proportions matched a large basking shark, and uh, it's well known that... Uh, when basking sharks decay, they um, often form a, what can be called a pseudoplesiosaur type shape where tissue around the throat and gills falls away, uh, leaves the appearance of a small head and a long neck. Um, uh, so basically it does kind of resemble a sea monster, but um, uh, again, the proportions were right for a basking shark, and then uh, when the tissue samples were looked at, they... Um, they matched the basking shark both physically and uh, chemically. Uh, in their physical appearance and their properties in terms of elasticity and translucence and things like that were identical to uh, shark fin rays and specifically a substance called elastoidin, which is only found in shark fins, uh, no, no reptiles or other fish even. And then the chemical analysis of the tissues um, gave a real tight match to um, the profile, the protein profile of a basking shark. And uh, so that pretty much clinched it, um, even though, again, the word didn't get out too well for a while. But, uh, again, if you look at all the evidence combined, uh, it seems pretty clear it was a decayed basking shark. And there were many pre- previous cases where uh, basking shark carcasses had been caught or, or washed up on shore and were initially mistaken for sea monsters. But then, uh, 
we studied better we concluded to be basking sharks. I read your uh, article, Sea Monster or Shark, that you wrote for the National Centre for Science Education, and uh, I noticed that there was a disparity between the early opinions of uh, the Japanese scientists and those of uh, the Americans and European scientists. So why do you think that was the case with their early uh, well, perceptions? Well, I think it was just some initial reactions which conflicted. They, they all pretty much uh, agreed uh, in the end for the most part. Um, initially, it seemed like the American scientists were somewhat more cautious or skeptical uh, about the case. They didn't want to suggest that it was uh, a plesiosaur or any kind of unknown animal um, because many of them were familiar with the, the previous cases of of uh, basking sharks or whales or other you know known creatures being mistaken for sea monsters. So um, even the Japanese, uh, some some of the Japanese sources were were more the more popular uh, uh, newspapers and so forth. The scientists, um, once they did their tissue sample analysis, they all pretty much came around to concluding it was almost certainly a, a decayed basking shark. You were talking earlier about the um, the links between the uh, between creationism and cryptozoology. I've read uh, some stuff by, for example, there's a guy named Chad Armand who's written a couple books on cryptozoology, and, and uh, I've heard some people talking about how part of the reason that many scientists. Uh, or at least I should say many of the Bigfoot proponents, uh, some of whom are scientists such as Jeff Meldrum, um, are really, are really fighting for, uh, belief in, in Bigfoot and other cryptids is because evidence for cryptids and, and these sorts of long lost creatures would bolster the arguments, for example, for Noah's Ark and other biblical things. Um, what's your, what's your well, take on, on that? Well, the, the, the creations we see on these potential, um, living fossils, uh, if you want to call them that. What they seem to be doing, for the most part, is, is trying to argue that the Earth must be young or geology, uh, conventional geology, uh, must not be accurate if um, if we find these living fossils, which I think involves a, a major misunderstanding of geology and Earth history. There is no conflict between uh, evolution or an old Earth and uh, the finding of these, of these cryptids because um, once an, uh, an animal group or any organism could be a plant even, appears in the fossil record, there is no reason why it has to go extinct at any particular time. It mm-hmm. may appear to, to, to have gone extinct based on the lack of fossils, but we know the fossil record is incomplete, so it's always possible that the group or some remnant of that group survived later than we thought and even into modern times. Um, there are many groups which many people think of as modern, like lizards and snakes and turtles, which were living alongside the dinosaurs. So if another reptile group, such as plesiosaurs, happened to have a modern representative, it would not, you know, destroy conventional geology or or the theory of evolution or anything like that. It would just be another interesting case where we thought a group had gone extinct and we come to find out that that was not the case. Um, now, in the case of Bigfoot, I think that's especially interesting. Um, most creations have stayed a little bit farther away from that than, say, these plesiosaur cases, because if Bigfoot exists, um, it would apparently be some type of subhuman hominid-type creature, and that does not fit very well with strict creationist uh, ideas that uh, humans did not evolve, that nothing evolved, that everything, all, all uh, basic life forms were created by fiat just several thousand years ago. So most most creationists are not, not big on Bigfoot, so to speak. Like many scientists, I'm, I'm 
fairly skeptical, based largely on lack of physical evidence and uh, the fact that it seems that most of the evidence uh, for it is, is either anecdotal or based on things like footprints, which can be faked, you know, rather than some compelling physical evidence. So, so you're saying that the main influence that the creationism would have on, on it would be either arguing for a young Earth uh, or, or sort of challenging evolution? Yeah, in the case of things like uh, alleged plesiosaur carcasses, they would argue that, one, it might somehow disrupt disrupt uh, conventional ge- geologic timetable. They seem to, to think that if, a, if scientists conclude that plesiosaurs went extinct with the dinosaurs, for example, that that is somehow some critical tenant of evolution, when really it is not. Now, the Plutzi tracks, which we can get into, are, are, are more interesting case. Um, that would be a much better... Uh, Support for their position if they were if there actually were human tracks alongside dinosaur tracks, because the general pattern of the fossil record does indicate that large modern mammals and especially humans did not appear until long after the non-avian dinosaurs went extinct. So the finding of human tracks back in the Cretaceous rocks with dinosaurs would, in fact, be a major problem for conventional geology. Much more of a problem than, say, finding a, ple- a modern plesiosaur, which all that would mean is that some group of reptiles survived longer than we thought. In the case of creationists who have used plesiosaurs or other brachiosaurs or, or a similar animal in, um, in Africa, uh, that seems to be a popular one as well. And, of course, there's the pterodactyls. Um, right, right. In, in all of those cases, like I say, they really, um, uh, many creationists imply they would be huge problems for conventional uh, geologists to explain, but, but really not. In fact, just like with the discovery of the coelacanth or the ginkgo, uh, uh, conventional scientists would celebrate those finds. They would say, oh, great, uh, some creature we thought was extinct is still alive. You know, um, they, they would not be a problem for them whatsoever. On the other hand, again, finding human tracks in Mesozoic rock, that would be a different story. <laughs> that would be a big problem. How have the creationists been using it in their literature and in their program? It seems like you, you presented a few cases where they had. Yeah, well, to be completely honest, they, uh, the creationists um, and cryptozoologists, for that matter, have really not used either of these cases the, the, the zoo, uh, in recent years very strongly. Most Cryptozoologists have, have backed off um, the Japanese plesiosaur and uh, have acknowledged it's, it's most likely a basking shark. And in the case of the Bluxy tracks, almost all the major creationist uh, leaders and groups have admitted that they um, were wrong or likely wrong in a lot of their initial uh, identifications and that there is no compelling evidence of human tracks in the Bluxy or, or any uh, ancient rocks as far as that goes. Um, there are only a few individuals still promoting the Paluxy uh, Mantrax, as they call them, but they're considered um, disreputable or unreliable even by most creationists. So it, it really the kind of, that controversy has kind of faded. Most of them have, have backpedaled from their, their older claims. Has there been any, any major uh, scientists or spokespeople who've rescinded their endorsement of this creature as being a plesiosaur, anyone in particular? It was, it was primarily uh, a few uh, cryptozoologists and, and several creationists who... Uh, promoted the um, the plesiosaur interpretation initially. Um, I don't think any of them were actually experts in in, in the field of uh, marine science or uh, or paleontology or anything like that. So um, I don't think it was ever a case where um, conventional scientists were embarrassed by misidentification. They, especially American scientists, seemed to be pretty cautious initially, and they. Speculated, you know, that it could be a shark or perhaps a whale or, or 
large turtle with the, with the shell missing or something like that, but they waited for the tissue analysis um, before uh, drawing any firm conclusions, which, which was good, you know. And unfortunately, the initial uh, sensational reports seemed to get a lot more attention than, than you know, the uh, scientific uh, reports of the tissue analysis, which pretty much... Well, that's always what happens. You know, the, the, the original claim is just this big headline grabbing, you know, mermaid found. Oh, wait, hold on. Never mind. I was going to well, ask you. That's why uh, I basically wanted to do the article to, to kind of compile the, the history of the case and uh, explain all the lines of evidence which pointed to the, to the fact that it was almost mm -hmm. certainly a basking shark to, to try to just uh, set the record straight on the thing. And occasionally you'll, you'll still see uh, an article here or there which uh, is not familiar with, with the whole case and, and suggests that it could still be a plesiosaur. But those, those are few and far between. It seems like almost all creationists, cryptozoologists, and mainstream scientists have come to agree that it's, it's almost certainly a basking shark. A lot of our listeners may not may, may not be familiar with the Paluxy uh, case. Can you can you sort of give us a little uh, thumbnail sketch of the whole the whole incident and basically what your what your thoughts are on it? Yeah, that that's something that which has largely consumed my spare time for uh, about thirty years. I began investigating uh, the tracks uh, right after college in 1980 and would fly down to Texas and work in the riverbed for a week or two or three almost every year uh, since then. And it was just there a few weeks ago, as a matter of fact, uh, trying to finish up some mapping uh, in the state park where a lot of the tracks are exposed. Uh, and it's hard to summarize the case in, in just a minute or two. We reference my website where I, I have many articles uh, explaining um, the whole controversy. And what website is that, Greg? Well, my homepage is paleo.cc, P-A-L-E-O dot C-C, and from that there are links to my Paluxy articles as well as my Plesiosaur Shark article, so that will give re uh, listeners uh, a chance to look into it in more detail. But I can try and summarize quickly. Around the turn of the century, 1908, there was a large flood in the Paluxy, which is a riverbed about 60 miles south of Fort Worth, uh, near the town of Glen Rose, Texas. And the flood ripped up uh, some limestone layers, revealing many dinosaur tracks, which the locals initially mistook for ancient elephant tracks. Some of the elongated forms they thought were giant human tracks, or as they called them, uh, moccasin prints, giant moccasin prints. And uh, in the 1970s and 80s, many strict creationist groups uh, seized on these uh, tracks. Um, they did a film there and uh, took a lot of photographs and uh, didn't do a lot of rigorous work, but um, wrote a lot of articles and, um, again, this film that promoted these elongated footprints as giant human tracks alongside dinosaur tracks and uh, claimed that that proved that evolution could not be true and the conventional geologic timetable uh, had to be wrong and the Earth was only several thousand years old. That's kind of their, their argument. This was one of their best tangible lines of evidence they claimed for this. During uh, my studies in college, uh, I began reading creationist, creationist literature and ran across these claims about human tracks <laughs> alongside dinosaur tracks, and uh, I didn't know what to make of them, and I wasn't satisfied really with the level of documentation either in the creationist literature or the mainstream responses. A lot of conventional scientists had dismissed the claims as just uh, all carvings or all middle toe impressions of dinosaurs or as one thing or another without apparently a lot of you know careful research to determine what exactly they were. So um, I decided right after college to fly down there and uh, 
try to investigate uh, and uh, figure out what they were. And it uh, turned out to be a perfect time. The riverbed was was dried up, and all the sites um, uh, could be accessed. And I was able to, with a friend of mine, clean off and photograph and, and study a lot of the the depressions which were claimed to be human tracks. And uh, it wasn't before long we had concluded that some of them were just erosional features, just um, natural irregularities or erosional marks that had been selectively highlighted to, to look kind of human. Um, and there were some cases of what appeared to be carved prints. Most of the carvings were on loose blocks of rock. But there were some, definitely some striding trails of elongated prints, which did not look like typical dinosaur footprints. Bipedal dinosaurs typically make footprints with three, three large toes, almost like large bird tracks. And these were much longer, and the toes were not very distinct on many of them. They did look somewhat like moccasin prints in, in some cases. But when we cleaned the surface very well, we could see on almost all of them indications of a three-toed, a long three-toed pattern at the front. So it was becoming clearer to us, even before the end of our first uh, trip, that they must be some type of reptilian or, or unusual dinosaur prints, but um, we, we really didn't understand what, what was causing them to be that elongated and, and take on that roughly human-like shape. Um, and to make a long story short, in uh, my subsequent uh, trips there and further studies on other sites, I found more and more examples of these elongated footprints and better and better indications of a three-toed pattern at the front. Um, and it appeared to me that at, at first I thought maybe there was a dinosaur with an unusually long foot making these impressions. And then it suddenly dawned on me it wasn't a dinosaur with an unusual foot. It was a dinosaur walking in an unusual fashion. It was putting weight on its soles and heels in, in what I call a plantigrade type way of walking. Um, and I call these metatarsal tracks because they're impressing their, their metatarsi or their soles and heels rather than just being up on their toes like most dinosaurs. Well, when I when I showed this evidence to some paleontologists, initially they, they kind of downplayed it and said, uh, dinosaurs, as far as we know, they don't, they don't walk that way, <laughs> so you must be mistaken. But I guess gathered more and more evidence and uh, some very clear examples of these metatarsal tracks. And then in 1986, I gave a couple papers at a, the first international uh, convention on dinosaur tracks, and they all then agree that these were, in fact, metatarsal dinosaur tracks, and they did appear to explain most of the alleged human tracks in the Paluxy. And during during all this, I was also writing letters to many of the creationists who had made the, the, the claims, uh, urging them to come down to the Paluxy and look at the evidence that I was uncovering and, and re-examine uh, some of the tracks and trails that they said were human, because in almost every case, you could see some pretty, pretty strong evidence of these dinosaurian toes at the front of their human tracks. I wasn't sure if they had not cleaned the track surface well enough or, or, or um, if they just kind of were selective in what, what tracks and which trails they had showed. But uh, in 1985, the evidence was becoming even plainer that many of these were, were dinosaur tracks because we noticed that uh, in, in, on, their, on their most famous site, uh, the digit impressions of the dinosaurs' uh, tracks were infilled with a secondary sediment, and the infilling was rusting. As we had cleaned and exposed them repeatedly, the iron in the infilling material was actually oxidizing and becoming uh, a dark, rust, uh, rusty brown color, and was contrasting with the limestone and in increasing the, 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 the contrast. In other words, they were becoming more and more obviously dinosaurian. And uh, finally, after they saw enough of our pictures and diagrams and so forth, a representative from 
the largest creationist group in California, ICR, the Institute for Creation Research, and um, representatives from the company that did the film, Footprints in Stone, they came down and uh, were quite shaken when we showed them all the evidence, and they admitted that they apparently had made a mistake. And um, soon afterwards, um, they withdrew the film from circulation, and ICR stopped selling their book. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. That's, that, I don't mean to interrupt. That right there is pretty remarkable. I, I've rarely... Rarely heard creationists admit they made a mistake. Yeah, uh, well, they they didn't. They weren't too eager to do it. That, that's exactly. <laughs> uh, there's a little bit more to the story. Um, John Morris, who's now the director of ICR, he was at that time um, the son of Henry Morris, who was the director. Um, he wrote the long, longest uh, creationist treatment on the subject. It was the book called Tracking Those Incredible Dinosaurs. And uh, when I showed him all this evidence, um, he he looked quite upset, and he said, "I don't know what we're going to." We just we just published uh, or printed thousands more copies of this book, and I said, "Well, John, you're going to have to tell people the truth." And uh, he says, "Well, I, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know what we're going to do. I have a lot of pressure from the group." And he was saying things like this. And then he said, "Well, how do I know that uh, some of these features weren't tainted on the tracks?" And I said, "John, you can see that you know there's there's not just the the color contrast, but there's indentations or or, or cracks or other indications of these." three-toed dinosaur patterns on the tracks, you know. And he said, yeah, I, I can see that. So he admitted on site, in other words, that that, that, um, that these were actually dinosaur tracks, that the, the coloration features were, were part of the infilling phenomenon. They weren't, it wasn't painted on. And he also acknowledged that there were cases of carving and, and uh, highlighted erosion marks and so forth. But he says, I don't know that I can just come out and say all this. Uh, <laughs> he kept... Uh, looking for ways to, to kind of backpedal without admitting, you know, fully that they had misidentified these things. Um, did, did they consider putting a sticker on their book? Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, he actually did keep selling the book for a while, and uh, in, in most cases did not have disclaimers in it. Uh, he eventually stopped selling it. But what really disturbed me is that uh, he, when he did finally write a statement about uh, the tracks, he said he admitted that they, they had made some possible mistakes, but that it is possible that 
that uh, some of these features may have been uh, artificially applied by but with paint or acid or something like that. And in the context of talking about my research, it kind of in, uh, insinuated that this, that I or you know uh, my colleagues might might have you know doctored the tracks to make them look more dinosaur-like when he admitted on site that that was not the case. So that that disturbed me that he could not just uh, come clean and, and say he was wrong. In any case, most of the groups. Um, they they praised him for admitting a possible mistake, and ICR and other groups um, no longer promote the tracks. Uh, there are only a few individuals that still do so, and again, they're not considered reliable even among creationists. So the controversy has died somewhat. Well, I, I knew that John Green, the uh, Bigfoot journalist, had written about these tracks and wanted to know why no specialist in fossil footprints had investigated them. But he wrote that a few years before your investigation. Yeah, um, I, I was—I didn't claim to be a fossil uh, footprint expert when I began uh, studying the Pelosi tracks, but I've learned an awful lot in the course of my research, and uh, I have... Um, Often worked with professional paleontologists in, in the Paluxy, and uh, in fact, just a few weeks ago, again, I was uh, doing more work with uh, with some paleontologists, Jim Farlow from the Indiana Purdue University, and uh, representatives from the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, and so forth. So, um, I've not done all this by myself, but I did kind of spearhead the resolution of the controversy, mainly because. Uh, no one else was really doing it. For some reason, uh, especially when I first started working, uh, footprints in general, uh, fossil f- f- footprints, were not uh, uh, didn't seem to be um, too interesting to many paleontologists. And I think some of them might have been staying away from the Pelosi tracks just because of all the creationists' involvement and their reluctance to kind of get embroiled in the whole controversy, which I think was a mistake because um, we learned an awful lot about dinosaur behavior and locomotion and posture and so forth just from studying the dinosaur tracks even aside from, from the human footprint controversy. And well, how big are these tracks? You said giant Well, footprint. they're not all huge. Um, a typical uh, metatarsal dinosaur track um, is about two feet uh, long, uh, sometimes shorter. Um, but but the, side, the, the portion of it which appears human-like is the metatarsal section at the back. It, these tracks appear roughly uh, superficially human when the, when the digits are subdued by either erosion or infilling or mud collapse or some combination of those factors. And it's that back part, the metatarsal segment, which roughly resembles a human foot. And in many cases, it's, it's somewhat larger than a normal human foot. It might be, you know, 14, 15, you know, 16 inches longer or longer. And that's why when some of the locals during the Great Depression carved some giant human tracks on loose blocks, I think they were just trying to make better examples of what they assumed were human prints or human moccasin prints in the, in the Paluxy. I don't even know that they had any anti-evolutionary motivation. Uh, I think they were just trying to make a little extra money. They probably didn't even understand that human tracks weren't supposed to be with the dinosaur tracks uh, geologically. Um, and I'm not even 100% sure that they sold the tracks as, as real tracks. They might have even admitted they were carvings, for all I know. Uh, I, re- I recently, during my last trip, uh, met the grandson of the man who apparently carved most of the loose slabs, and they, they recently found another one in, in, the, in the cellar. And the family acknowledges that this man did, did carve the tracks. His name is George Adams. They all have, the ones that loose blocks, anatomic problems that usually the toes are long, the balls misplaced, and so forth. And several have been cross-sectioned, and the, the subsurface features abruptly truncated after depressions, so that shows pretty clearly that they were carved. But again, I think he was just trying to make better examples of what he assumed 
were human tracks in the Plexi Riverbed, um, which, again, I think began when the locals misidentified these metatarsal dinosaur tracks as human tracks. And when they're not well cleaned, they, they do look roughly like large human tracks. They do have that general shape. So it was, a, it was an understandable misidentification for the locals. Now, the creationists, most of them... Um, I think we're sincere, but they, they could have done a lot better research. They just, again, seem to have uh, not, not cleaned and studied the tracks carefully and uh, kind of jumped to the conclusion that they were human tracks, which was what they wanted to conclude they were. But, again, most have backed off uh, backpedaled in recent years, and, and very few promote them anymore. Lane, can you tell us how footprints are fossilized? It's interesting. Um, even scientists debate um, the exact conditions under which different footprints are, are, are formed or fossilized. Um, in most cases, though, it seems like for footprints to be preserved uh, well, they need to be made in a, a moist but fairly firm sediment. Um, in the case of the Texas tracks, it would have been a, a firm, limey mud. And um, during early Cretaceous times, the ancient Gulf of Mexico came inland much farther than it does today. And when the tide went out, it would have left a vast mud flat, and the dinosaurs were marching through that um, for who knows what reason. And uh, and then probably they dried out for a short period of time, maybe maybe days, maybe uh, in some cases even a little longer, um, which would have given them a chance to get a little harder, kind of baking in the sun, uh, before they were buried with another sediment. Um, and again, for tracks to be well preserved. Um, they, they, in most cases, would be generally buried, and probably in, in, usually with the contrasting sediment. In other words, if the if the original material was a limey mud that they walked through, if the sediment that buried them was a little sandier um, or coarser, that would help the layers to separate later. There, and uh, that, that that's what happened in the case of the Biloxi tracks. Um, there's kind of an alternating sequence of, of different uh, types of sediment, and. Um, of course, the, the Paluxy Riverbed was, was not there initially. Many many visitors to the state park, they're puzzled uh, by the fact that all these tracks are in the middle of the riverbed, and they wonder how could they survive for millions of years with the river flowing over them. Well, of course, it, it wasn't flowing over them. The river wasn't there. The river just removed the overlying rock layers that uh, exposed the tracks again. And, um, of course, while they were buried, they gradually turned to limestone, and uh, that that does uh, you know help them to resist erosion, but they do erode fairly quickly once they're exposed. You know, it only takes years or decades before they start getting eroded or, or, or broken away and washed downstream. Uh, just since I began studying tracks in 1980, many dozens of tracks have, have washed away or eroded badly in the Biloxi. But then sometimes the river cuts into the banks more and exposes new ones. So there's still many many good tracks to be seen there. And, uh, but it's interesting, uh, when, whenever I'm working in the Paluxy, a lot of visitors will come by and then ask questions about how the tracks were made. And, and um, some of them I don't mean to make fun, but are kind of humorous. One lady had a very puzzled look on her face, and I asked her what was bothering her. And she said, well, I knew dinosaurs were heavy, but I never imagined they could punch holes in solid rock. You've got to love scientific thing. literacy among the masses, huh? <laughs> Right. You don't know whether to even begin explaining at that point. But um, most people do understand that the tracks were made in soft mud initially, but they, they many times are confused as to how they, they stay preserved so well or, or whether the river was, was there all along or, or so forth. So uh, how long will these tracks survive with the river going over them? 
It depends a lot. The ones uh, that are in the middle of the riverbed, which gets the, the greatest uh, force of the water action and the scouring from the sediment and so forth, uh, they don't last but a few years until uh, they get uh, noticeably scoured. And some of them that were quite nice uh, when I first visited in 1980 are completely obliterated or very badly scoured now. When the, when the track surface is, is, is moist and it was raining on and off, it looks like the dinosaurs just walked by a few minutes ago. They're that clear. I, I, I posted some some photos from my recent trip on, on my you know, website photo gallery, and I'll be putting more up soon. And uh, you can see the tracks in the flux are some of the best dinosaur tracks in the world, and the sauropod tracks, which are made by the four-footed brontosaur-type dinosaurs, are unquestionably the best in the world. They show the, the digits, uh, the claw marks, really plainly, whereas sauropod tracks and other sites, and there aren't too many other sites that have sauropod tracks, uh, they usually look like just big potholes. They don't have the details, or, you know, the crisp features that the plucky tracks have. And, and the three-toe tracks, they, they occur in quite a few sites, uh, and most of the ones in plucks are made by theropods, which are two-legged meat-eating dinosaurs. But uh, even though they're fairly common, the ones in the plucky are, are some of the best in the world. They have really distinct features. You can see the claws and pads on each of the feet in many cases. So they're, they're quite impressive. I was going to ask, uh, just to change gears a second, I was going to see, um, what, do you, what do you make of the, the often heard Bigfoot claim that w- when, you, when you bring up the fact that there really is no fossil record for, for Bigfoot, uh, they often say, well, you know, uh, bear, bear bones are rarely found out in the wilderness, and we know the bears exist, and therefore... I've never really understood, <laughs> therefore, what? Because, you know, we, yeah, we know I, the bears I've heard that. As a matter of fact, um, a good friend of mine is, is a, a pretty avid uh, Bigfoot tracker. He, uh, he goes looking for it uh, and um, believes it probably exists. I'm much more of a skeptic, and I was never too impressed by that argument. Um, for one thing, when you, I don't think the analogy holds up too well when you consider... Um, bear bones or um, other bones of large vertebrates, whether they be cougars or deer or whatever, uh, they may be rare, but they are found. <laughs> dozens and dozens are found every year. Uh, and so, and, and not only their bones, but complete carcasses and the living animals in all those right. cases. Uh, many, many examples every year. Um, what would be different about Bigfoot that would make its physical remains so much more rare that uh, they're essentially uh, non-existent uh, other than the alleged footprints, um, you just don't find bones or carcasses ever. And uh, right, well, and you would also it's expect one thing, it's be- one thing to say there's one thing to say they'd be rare, but if they were rare, you'd still have dozens of examples. Uh, just, but to explain why you never find them, that becomes much more uh, problematic. Right, and plus, the, the, if the Bigfoot are really you know 12 feet tall, or depending on which one you're talking about, then presumably the the bones would be scaled up, so they should be uh, even you know even larger, and presumably have an, leave an even bigger record. Right, right. I mean, you could make the argument, well, maybe they're burying their dead or something, but then you'd have evidence of the graves and so forth or, or tool using or, or something. It's, it's just hard to explain why you don't find any evidence of, of you know, their, where they sleep or their physical remains. So other than the alleged footprints, it's pretty much just anecdotal sightings, and, and uh, you know, most scientists just can't put a whole lot of stock in that. Well, it's my understanding that extraterrestrials actually come and snatch dead Bigfoot. And they take them somewhere else, and therefore that's that's why we can't find them. 
that's just possible, I guess. <laughs> but uh, I think I think that's a joke, though, right, Ben? They really. They actually, <laughs> you know what? I, I I'm sure someone's made that claim. I think I think in fact actually, no, I, John, actually I think that, I, I think that was an episode of uh, the Six Million Dollar Man. <laughs> there you go. I miss Lee Majors. They had they had an alien Bigfoot. Uh, they they did. They had bionic Bigfoot. But I was just thinking that al- yeah. aliens prefer cow rectum, and, and okay. I think that, that might have been before Bigfoot. your time. I am all yeah. there, <laughs> <laughs> No, no, I had the. I was right in there with the six million. Yeah. Anyhow, I mean, <laughs> like a lot of people, I, I would love for Bigfoot or, or any other of these uh, uh, cryptids, uh, as they call them, to, to exist. But um, you know, most scientists they they just want compelling evidence before you know. Uh, accepting it, and um, that's all I ask for too. You know, I, I'm glad to entertain it, but before I say it's it's probable, you know, or, or likely, I'd, I'd want to see better evidence for it. Um, because I know from the, from the Plexi tracks and other things that people often do misidentify things or jump to conclusions. You know, and if they see something, they can furry from a distance. You know, <laughs> whether it's a bear or somebody in a costume or you know, it's, or some footprint that someone may have faked. I mean, it's easy to to jump to a conclusion, but in order to prove it scientifically, you know, it takes more rigorous evidence, I think. Um, well, you, you actually, there's some real good overlap here between uh, cryptozoology and um, this particular misidentification of footprints. Mm-hmm. And so I'm glad you're answering some of our questions here. Can you derive roughly how much a dinosaur weighed from the depth of the tracks? No, not at all. That, that's a common question. But actually, the depth of a print has a lot more to do with the consistency of the sediment than how heavy the animal is. If you think about it, you yourself can make uh, a very shallow track or no track at all if you're walking on firm ground. If you're walking on soft mud, you might sink in a foot. So it's very hard to gauge someone's weight from the depth of the print without knowing exactly how, you know, the density and consistency of the sediment. And in, in, even in the plucks, you can see where the same, what appears to be the same type and roughly the same size dinosaur will make prints of vastly varying depth depending on where and when he walked. You know, there are areas where the mud appears to have been firmer and there are very shallow prints and other areas where it appears the mud was soft and, and the same size print will sink in, you know, very deep, sometimes up to a foot in, into the into the mud, you know, so. But um, you can get an idea just based on what type of dinosaur it is by the structure of the, the, the foot. You, you can tell whether it's a theropod, a two-legged meat eater, or an ornithopod, a two-legged plant eater. And in the case of the Texas uh, tracks, most of the theropod tracks uh, were probably made by a dinosaur called Acrocanthosaurus. And we have its bones and, and um, some fairly complete uh, skeletons. And so we can we can judge based on the size of the footprint how, how big the animal would have been, and, and using some reasonable guesses on you know how it was fleshed out about how much it would have weighed and so forth. So it's based more on the size of the prints than the depth of the prints, in other words. And you can you can calculate the speed too, but again, it's based on some assumptions about uh, analogs with modern animals based on the size of the foot and the hip height and so forth, and the length of the step, how how fast roughly it would have been moving, you know. It, but there are some formulas you can you can use and you get a reasonable estimate for how fast the dinosaur in any particular trail would have been moving, you know, based on its its uh, pace length and its and its foot length. So, if two of dinosaurs, you had a theropod and a, and a sauropod crossing, and they're roughly in the same strata track wise, how closely can you tell whether they were are they are they within years of each other or minutes of each other? Can well, you tell on most of these sites, there's there's very little doubt that that uh, even when you when you have sauropod tracks and theropod tracks together, in some cases are ornithopod tracks too. Um, some are a little deeper than others, but um, uh, it, it appears they were made 
probably within hours or days of each other most of the trails on any one particular site um, because um, even though they may have dried out and, and, and uh, you know, not been buried immediately, they, they couldn't have been sitting out there for years or they would have been uh, marred by erosion and weather and so forth. So at most it's weeks or months and probably in most cases less than that that any particular uh, track site was exposed before it got buried. And um, in the case of some of the Plutsy tracks, they are so clear that um, it looks like they were probably, you know, dried out and then buried, you know, pretty quickly before any any series of, you know, uh, say tides or weathering came. Probably, probably the first tide buried them enough where they were protected, you know, and, uh, and came in fairly gently and just kind of settled into them. Some paleontologists think in, on some sites... Um, there may have been some laminations of different types of sediment where as soon as the dinosaurs stepped, stepped um, some sediment of a different type sloshed right into them immediately. They were almost instantly preserved in, in, that, in that sense. But there's some debate about that. Um, in any case, uh, it, it looks like on most sites that there was not much time between um, when, when different dinosaurs walked through the area. Um, but, of course, tracks are found throughout the, the fossil record, uh, from a lot of invertebrate tracks in Paleozoic periods uh, to just, you know, dozens and dozens of, actually, thousands of, of track sites throughout the Mesozoic, which uh, is really difficult for a strict creationist to explain how all these thousands of, of track sites were formed during the midst of a global flood, violent global flood. It just doesn't add up. And if you think about uh, the large nesting sites that have been found in some areas, we have hundreds of dinosaur nests, which would require the dinosaurs get together, mate, you know, make nests, lay the eggs, hatch the eggs, and so forth. Uh, it could not happen during the midst of a, a violent flood, so it really puts a, a kink in their argument about the Earth being only a few thousand years old and, and the flood explaining most of the fossil record. Um, the tracks really um, seem to be a big challenge to that idea. But sure, I, and... It- so your work has been a big challenge to that too, apparently. So yeah, I have not really pushed, pushed that that particular uh, argument, the line of argument. But I think uh, I've, I've mentioned it, and, and I think creationists realize that they really haven't come up with a good explanation for that. Um, the best they can do is, is say something like, "Well, maybe there were some lulls in the floodwaters," and yet, by their own other descriptions, it was a rapid and continuous deposition, very violent worldwide and so forth and you know even if you could say you know there was there were some periods where the, the floodwaters were, were less violent um, where were all these dinosaurs while the thousands of feet of sediment were being deposited underneath were they treading water for months <laughs> it doesn't make sense um, and, and then when you consider like I say besides the dinosaur tracks throughout the Mesozoic there's you know thousands and thousands of other track layers of amphibians and other reptiles and invertebrates insects and spiders even and things like that all throughout the fossil record and so to ex- explain how they could all be made in the midst of a global flood just doesn't doesn't make sense. You know, and you can get into radiometric dating and all the problems with that too that conflict with their run model. But um, I think the tracks are are really uh, especially interesting because um, they're really a record of a living animal, and you can learn a, a lot about their behavior and posture and locomotion that you can't easily learn from the, their bones or dead remains. And they're very common too. A lot of people. I think that dinosaur tracks are fairly rare, but actually they're much more common than dinosaur bones. And that makes sense when you think about it, because if dinosaur had only one skeleton, it's looking at the most it could have left. And, many, of course, many skeletons aren't even preserved, whereas it could leave millions of tracks during its life, and at least some of them would probably be preserved. That's true. Well, well Glenn, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. 
and, and for taking so much time to investigate these questions because somebody needed to. And you've done some really good case studies here. And obviously, this one's captured your imagination. So. Thank you. Thank when you very much. It was a lot of fun. And uh, as soon as I uh, saw the tracks in 1980, I was immediately hooked on them. I, I couldn't believe that more people were interested in, in working on them. And uh, I've been uh, just, uh, it's been a passion of mine ever since. Did you want to, I don't know if, I know we've been talking for quite a while. You had a couple other questions about how long it takes a fossil to form and so forth. Did you want to touch on those? Or, or we pretty well, much? yeah, if you, want to, do you, if you want to talk about that, yeah. How long does it take a fossil to form? <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was an interesting, interesting question because there really is no set answer. Some creationists have tried to cite examples of very rapid fossilization where some say modern object will be encased in a rock nodule or something and then try to argue, well, see, it doesn't take long for things to fossilize, so maybe the Earth is very young after all. But that really is a fallacious argument because even though some things may fossilize quickly, if you want to even call that fossilization, um, in other cases, it appears that it requires many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years, for something to be fossilized. And by fossilized, generally, um, what we mean is that it, uh, the original tissue or material is being replaced by other minerals or sediments, and it's turning into a more stone-like state. But that's not really required. Actually, for something to be a fossil, um, it has more to do with its age than its composition or hardness. Um, as a rule of thumb, if an organic object is older than about 10,000 years old, it's considered a fossil, no matter how well mineralized it is. Really? Even if it's not mineralized at all? Right. Now you can have, for example, a shark tooth, uh, which might be, say, you know, many thousands of years old or even a couple million years old, and still retain most of its original material and have very little mineral replacement because it's extremely hard and dense to begin with. Things don't just tend to absorb in it very easily. But it's still considered a fossil as long as it's over about 10,000 years old. And the reason they use that that uh, rule of thumb is that, uh, you know, the beginning of the Holocene was, is considered to be about 10,000 years ago, and the Holocene is considered, you know, the modern uh, epoch, essentially. So anything that's pre-modern, um, prehistoric, if you will, is considered a fossil um, if it's the remains or trace of any living thing. And, of course, even a footprint is, can be considered a fossil. A prehistoric footprint would be considered a fossil. But if the sediment was made in is not completely petrified or it might still be pliable, in some cases they are, that doesn't mean it's not a fossil. <laughs> and the composition might be almost identical to what it was originally. It's just maybe gotten a little harder. But that has nothing to do with whether you consider it a fossil or not. So um, anyhow, uh, there are many types of fossilization and, and the rates at which something becomes hard or mineralized varies a lot depending on the conditions, what other minerals are in the surrounding sediments and how, how fast the water might be leaching through it and so forth. So it varies a lot. There are some things which can become encrusted or, or somewhat mineralized just even in decades or centuries, and creationists like to seize on those and say, well, see, there it can happen very quickly, but just because it occasionally happens quickly doesn't mean it usually does or does, you know, does in most cases. Well, wait, that's a bit confusing, though, Glenn, because if, if anything that's organic but 10,000 years or older is a fossil, mm-hmm. but the world is only 6,000 years old, then how, how could there be any fossils? Something's not jiving here. Man. Well, that's interesting because in the creation's framework, right, there would be, there should be no fossils. And that, in fact, the existence of so many well-mineralized fossils does, in my view, and most scientists strongly, among you know, mounds of other evidence, discount their, their model because there are things like, uh, you know, uh, 
Halos are like, you know, invertebrates and, and wood and so forth that they're, they're thoroughly mineralized. They're essentially completely turned to rock. And, you know, they don't, they can't easily explain how that can happen in, in, in centuries or a few thousand years even. Um, they don't have the, the mechanism or, or, you know, I mean, just because they occasionally find some Coke bottle in a, you know, limey rock nodule, you know, you can't, you know, rock slurries can harden around almost anything, but to completely mineralize, you know, you know, permineralize something and absorb into all the tissues and, and become, you know, a stone-like, uh, object is, is something that, you know, I'm not an expert on, on, uh, mythology or something, but it just appears that all the evidence indicates it takes much more than a few thousand years. And again, if you look at the radiometric dating and all the other lines of evidence, you know, it, it just doesn't doesn't add up that, that it's all a few thousand years old. And besides, the order of the fossils is consistent around the world. Each period of geologic time has its own assemblage of, of plants and animals, and uh, it's consistent like that in the same order around the world. And they'll cite these alleged exceptions, but well, why are there only a handful of alleged exceptions? There should be millions and millions of out-of-order fossils if, if their model is true. If, there should be no trouble documenting countless examples. You know, not just, uh, you know, the, the Plucky tracks are just one of a few cases they could point at. They, they should have no trouble pointing to thousands if, if, you know, everything's moving at the same time and got all classified together during Noah's flood a few thousand years ago. Yeah, exactly. I, I think there's evolutions got a way to be falsified and no one's managed to do it yet but it's re- it would be really difficult to right. uh, fals- falsify creationism if the yeah. whole premise is God did it so that's the yeah. end well but yeah they can appeal to miracles but I, actually I think both can be fossilized it's just that uh, they haven't come up with the, the evidence that would falsify evolution for example Paluxy tracks and uh, in terms of creationism I think they have a hard time explaining uh, many things which I think do falsify their model, you know, whether it's radiometric, radio, radiometric dating or the order of fossils, or I have some on my Tuluxi website near the bottom, I have uh, some essays which I describe as fos- uh, falsifications of creationism. They're very brief, but I think they're powerful arguments that show that the Earth can't be only a few thousand years old. Just one example would be meteorite bombardment. If you look at the moon, you can see that it was hit by millions of meteorites. And now on the Earth, being an even bigger body, would have been hit by even more. And most of them, according to astronomers, uh, would have hit within the first billion years of Earth history. But according to creationists, the, Earth, the whole Earth is only maybe 10,000 years old at the most. So all those meteorites must have hit within that time frame. Well, it's completely incompatible with human survival. I mean, even a few of those would have wiped out the human race, let alone million, you know, all, the, all the millions. So... I mean, they can say, well, maybe, like Henry Morris tried to say, was, well, those are just scars of some battle between Satan and the angels or something ridiculous. Or, or maybe, you know, the moon was created with those craters intact, you know. Or, but if you look at it realistically, no, those are real craters by real meteorites. And they would have hit the Earth, too. And it's just not compatible with the 2,000-year history. Of the well, well you've, you've given us a really good overview here of the dinosaur-slash-creationism um, Arguments because and this is going to come up again on Monster Talk because we're going to talk about dinosaurs in Africa and uh, supposed pterosaurs that are still flying around and oh, cool. so yeah well those are, those are those are some side interests of mine too and um, if you if it's possible if you could reference my paleo.cc website I have links to uh, again the ZM case and then uh, the Pluxy uh, controversy but as part of the Pluxy menu I have uh, articles and, and essays on uh, alleged living pterosaurs and the African case and so forth. So, um, you know, in case readers want to 
Yeah, that sounds good. In fact, we might be able to put some uh, excerpts or some links uh, from our uh, Monster Talk uh, page. Um, yeah. So, yeah, Like I said, if you can just do even the paleo.cc, because everything kind of changed off from that, they'll be able to get sure. whatever Absolutely. They well, thank, thank you so much for coming and talking to us tonight, Glenn. Okay. Thanks very much for having me. Good talking to you. Thanks. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, thanks again for listening to another episode of Monster Talk. Theme music provided by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Your hosts today have been Ben Radford, Karen Stolzno, and myself, Blake Smith. Our guest today was Glenn Cuban, and he was discussing the case of the Zuyo Maru Sea Monster and the Paluxy Dinosaur Tracks. Glenn's website is paleo.cc. Check it out. And be sure to check out monstertalk.org, our website, and our sister site, monsterscience.org, where we collect articles like the ones Glenn wrote. Thanks. A barking shark? A basking whale. Oceano- I can't even pronounce it. Yeah. <laughs>